the TJF podcast. My name's Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a lot to laugh about in policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it's really been like to be in the police in Britain during the last 30 years. How did it change? And more importantly, how did it come to be in a bit of a mess? I'll describe every job that I did over those years, reading excerpts from my book. I'll also give you my thoughts about contemporary police issues. I'll also interview some really interesting people who'll give me their perspective. My wife Kay is going to help me from time to time. There may be a little bit of swearing occasionally, so probably best to keep the kids out of the room or use headphones. Everything I say and write comes from a place of great love for policing and police officers, but I know that some people probably won't agree with what I say and that's okay. All I ask is that you read or listen with an open mind And if you go away feeling that you know more about what policing in Britain is really all about, and perhaps have a little bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, Ian here. Uh, listen, thanks ever so much for tuning in to the very first TJF podcast. I'm really excited to be doing this. Uh, I love podcasts. I really hope that you like this one. There's a lot of them out there. But um, I think this one's going to be really interesting for anyone who's even remotely interested in British policing, which is where I come from, as I'll explain as I go through. So what is this podcast all about? So I've written a book which hasn't been published yet, but I live in hope. During lockdown, I think agents and publishers were incredibly busy. I think probably lots of people decided to write books because they had probably not a fat lot uh, else to do in lockdown. I started writing this book back in 2019 and I just thought, well, you know what, let's just get it out there, stick it on a website. Um, I'll tell you about that in a moment. And uh, I thought this podcast would be a really good way of going through it and trying to uh, explain what it's actually like to be in the police um, as opposed to the police on the telly or the police in the media, which I think gives us a very poor impression sometimes, very out of balance impression. So uh, I want to try and set the record straight a little bit. So the website, if you want to go to the website, um, so all of these podcasts are going to be on the website as well as the usual places like Apple and Spotify, Google, etc. But the website is www.tjfbook, which is all one word, tjfbook in lowercase.com. So you'll find uh, each of the chapters of the book there. It's in, uh, it hasn't been professionally edited yet, but hopefully there's not going to be any uh, absolutely horrific uh, typos or uh, dreadful grammatical errors. If there are, um, please let me know. Feedback's a gift. What I'll do as well, if, if somebody doesn't want to keep on going into each individual chapter, because that could get a bit tedious, um, I'll also stick a PDF uh, on the website so you can uh, download it and have it and read it in a one I believe you can you can upload PDFs to, what's the word I'm looking for? E-readers, um, Kindles, things like that. Um, there are other uh, e-readers available, I'm sure. So you might prefer to read it on an e-reader rather than um, chapter by chapter on the website. Anyway, what's the podcast all about? So TJF, what does TJF actually mean? 
So uh, when I first joined the police back in 1989 in London, the expression TJF was used fairly frequently by, by officers. And when I first joined, it didn't mean anything to me whatsoever. And pretty quickly, I learned that TJF uh, means the job's fucked. And uh, it's kind of said by police officers, particularly London. I can't speak for every force in the country. I've been in two forces, Metropolitan Police and the West Midlands Police. So I can't speak for every force in the country. But certainly in London, it's a very common expression. And it's something that police officers have been saying for a very long time. So I tell a little story in the book about meeting an old boy who lived uh, in a top floor of a council block in South London. Uh, he was great. He was he had fought in the Second World War and then he had joined the police and he had served in the police all through the Blitz. Um, so he'd really lived this very full life and, and he had retired from the Metropolitan Police in the uh, 1950s or something like that. And and quick as a flash, he said to me, um, is the job still fucked? And I said, yes, it is. Uh, and we both sort of had a laugh about it. So the point is that people have been saying that about the police for a really, really long time. And it sort of said a bit tongue in cheek. But I think it's fair to say that the police in the last 10 to 15 years, I think if I was to kind of put a date on it, I'd say that it really started to go badly wrong, probably about 2010. The purpose of me writing the book, and I'll come, come on to talk about um, maybe some of my other motivations in a little bit, but my purpose for writing the book was just to try and explore, try and make sense of, is the job fucked? Sorry, I feel really bad, so I'm having to whisper it because the kids are downstairs and um, they wouldn't be very impressed and my wife wouldn't be very impressed if, if I was sitting here swearing my head off. It's just an expression, but... So I need to try and understand, is it or is this just something that people have actually said? So I don't want to sort of, no spoiler alerts, but um, in the very final chapter of the book, I do actually sort of come down on, on, on you know, one side of that fence, but I won't tell you right now. You have to read it and find out for yourself. So a little bit about me, first of all. So the, I will be reading a little bit from the book shortly, but... I think it's going to be boring for you and probably boring for me if I just read verbatim from the book. Um, you can read it yourself. What I think is probably more helpful is for me to dip into the book here and there and, and sort of talk around some of those issues a little bit more to add sort of a bit of colour and lightened shade. So a bit about me, first of all. As I said, my name is Ian Donnelly. I'm uh, 55 years old. Oh my God, how did that happen? In my head, I'm still about 24, but there you go. Uh, it happens to everyone. And, and I suppose I should feel very blessed to have even got to that age, particularly having lived the sort of life that I've lived, which has been stupidly uh, doing some stupidly dangerous things, uh, both professionally and in my spare time. Yeah, I'm from Northern Ireland originally. I was born in a place just south of Belfast in uh, 1965, grew up there uh, through the height of the Troubles, uh, the 1970s and 80s, when it was really um, pretty pretty full on in terms of bombs and shootings pretty much every day. I went to a, a Quaker school, uh, whilst I'm sort of Protestant from sort of background, um, I've never been remotely interested in all that stuff. I don't actually give a shit 
um, what someone is. But that's kind of my heritage, I suppose. Um, but I went to a Quaker school. Um, so um, I, I went, I was one of the very few people in my school, uh, not me personally, the people in my school were one of the very few groups of people who were able to be uh, educated alongside Roman Catholics. So, so that was that was really healthy, I think. So yeah, I, I went to university in Birmingham uh, when I graduated from graduate and graduate from school did I when I finished my A-levels although I have a graduation for everything these days don't they even my kids graduated from nursery when they were about um, four which was just ridiculous uh, where was I sorry slightly went off the tangent that yeah so I went to university in uh, 1984 in Birmingham I studied French which has have been absolutely no use to me whatsoever apart from being able to look impressive in French restaurants and uh, and then when I finished university, did a bit of travelling, and and then I joined the police in London in 1989. My brother uh, was a police officer in in the Met uh, as well, uh, and I kind of followed him in there because he used to come home and and talk a lot about some of the really interesting stuff that that he used to do. So I, that kind of piqued my interest. I was a bit of a kind of a typical slightly left wing student when I was at university, uh, and I used to I was initially really disgusted with them that he joined the police because I thought they were a bunch of fascist bully boys uh, and and obviously that's a, a, a view still held by a lot of um, you know people but obviously uh, you know because he was my brother and I sort of trusted what he said I thought actually I've completely got this wrong doing some really interesting stuff they're doing some really important valuable stuff for society helping a lot of people and it sounded really interesting and really exciting so I thought you know what let's go for it so I joined the police. Initially, I was posted to South London as a uniform PC. And I did about four, four and a half years there uh, before I went to Special Branch. And I joined Special Branch in about 1994, just about the time of the first um, IRA ceasefire. Um, so the, the provisional IRA were waging a, a fairly destructive terrorist campaign uh, on the British mainland, large, uh, huge bombs uh, being um, planted and um, causing all sorts of, uh, you know, damage and uh, economic damage as well as physical damage and deaths and injuries. Uh, so I arrived just after the, the ceasefire, the first ceasefire in 94, and I spent some time on the Islamic uh, desk before I moved on to the Irish desk on the resumption of hostilities when the Docklands bomb uh, went off in 1996. So anyway, I'm not going to go into that in too much detail. I'll just sort of give you a whistle-stop tour. So yeah, in 2002, I transferred to the West Midlands Police on promotion to sergeant. I worked in Coventry as a sergeant. I also worked in Coventry as an as a inspector. And then I went off to Birmingham as an inspector. Uh, and then I was a detective inspector uh, in child abuse investigations for um, quite a while. And I went back to counterterrorism as a detective inspector um, for a few years. And then you can read all this stuff in the book. So, so yeah, so I did all sorts of stuff. Uh, then I was a detective chief inspector in force intelligence. Uh, and eventually I was a superintendent, uniform superintendent. And then I was on, a, I finished up as a, as a project manager of a national data analytics project. I did that in my last 12 months. I'm now an independent uh, advisor, consultant to technology companies who build uh, technical solutions for law enforcement and intelligence agencies in order to 
gather evidence, investigate crime, and gather intelligence. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm now in business doing that uh, and thoroughly enjoying it very much because it, it means I can still keep sort of one foot in policing because I still deal with a lot of cops through my work, which is great. Okay, so um, before I kind of dive into the book, I'm just thinking what else I need to tell you about. So Mrs. Donnelly um, is going to give me a hand, um, bless her. She is a smog monkey. Um, I'm not going to tell you what that is. Um, I'll let her tell you that herself. Um, I did threaten to say that, and uh, she said, don't you say that I'm a smog monkey. Um, but and there you go, I've just said it. So I'll let her explain um, what that's all about. She can give you her perspective about what it's like to be married, blessed to be married to me and married um, to a police officer. What's that actually like, you know, living the dream of someone who is doing that job um, for a long period of time and all of the uh, ups and downs of, of that um, from her perspective. And she's a she's a, a bit of a bright cookie herself. She's just recently taken voluntary redundancy, um, having done 26 years for IBM. So she's got some interesting um, stuff to talk about as well, I think, from a businessy point of view. But um, but yeah, and you can just generally kind of laugh at her ridiculous northeast accent, which is always good for amusement. Okay, so why did I write this book? Okay, so that's a that's a really interesting collection of reasons why I decided to write the book. So firstly. It, for me, it was all about almost like a cathartic process of making sense of the last 30 years of, of policing and, and all of the things that I did over that time. Um, some, of the, some of it was absolutely terrifying. Some of it was uh, absolutely hilarious. And some of it was just unbelievably depressing. And that's the thing in this podcast. We're going to cover a lot of different kind of stuff. Um, some of it is going to be funny, I hope. Some of it is going to be hope interesting and, and some of it's going to be quite dark, I think, to be fair. I, 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 um, I think it's only fair to give you that sort of health warning in this first episode. Some of the things we're going to be talking about are, are quite unpleasant. A lot of the things that I've dealt with over the years have been uh, very, very unpleasant. And uh, yeah, so when I finished in the police in 2019, it felt like a bit of a bereavement, really. I uh, felt a bit lost, if I'm being completely honest with you. I mean, when I finished, I did lots of really interesting and nice things, uh, like a lot of cops do when they finish their, their sort of careers. So I you know, cycled with a good mate of mine uh, down to the south of France, did some travelling with my two older kids. Um, yeah, I've got four kids, by the way. Um, yeah, God help me. And yeah, I did lots of travelling, did travelling with the older ones and um, did lots of nice things. But then once the sort of initial euphoria of finishing wears off, uh, then you kind of are looking into the future and thinking, oh, shit, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life now? And I had planned to set the business up. Uh, so that was a focus. But there was definitely a sense of a loss, a deep sense of loss uh, at, at leaving an organisation that had been such a big part of my life for such a long time. And... Um, yeah, I, I don't mind admitting that I probably felt a little bit depressed, actually, probably six months maybe after leaving. I don't think it was, you know, something, a clinical thing, but it was certainly very periods of low mood, I suppose. And while we're on that uh, subject, 
I'm going to be really honest about things in this podcast. I'm going to tell you about the impact of being in the police and some of the things that you have to deal with um, it has on you. I'm going to talk about mental health quite a lot because it's a big, big subject in policing at the moment. Um, and thank God, mental health um, has been is no longer such a stigma uh, that it used to be. And certainly there's no way that I would ever admit it to having had episodes of poor mental health, uh, certainly, you know, 10 plus years ago, even five years ago, I, I think I would have probably been very, very reluctant to even hint at it in a professional way. But but I, I don't mind admitting that I've struggled with my mental health from time to time. I've struggled with very severe anxiety. Uh, that started in about 2000 and where are we, about 2005 maybe. Uh, I was a detective sergeant in Coventry. It got so bad, I was so stressed uh, with work that uh, I used to have to stop my car on the way to work to be sick. Uh, that's not a great way to start your day, is it? Um, standing at the side of the road, retching into the into the uh, hard shoulder. Yeah, I had a little bit of a mini breakdown, but I didn't actually take any time off work, which is a bit weird. Uh, I just sort of battled through it and went to the doctor and kind of got myself sorted out with some medication and what have you. Um, and since that time, periodically, and anyone who's who's struggled with their mental health uh, will understand exactly what I'm saying here, that it's not all the time, is it? Um, you know, you can go for long periods of time when everything's fine and uh, and you feel great and, and what have you. And then, and then you maybe, uh, your mood sort of starts to take a little bit of a dip um, and you start to struggle and maybe um, sleeping becomes a bit of a problem and then you start to feel really anxious. Um, yeah, so uh, so since 2005, I've I've kind of, um, you know, periodically struggled. Uh, and um, but, it, you know, and this is something I'd say to people out there who who have experienced this or, who, or maybe haven't experienced it now. But you know what? You probably will at some point. So it doesn't make you a bad person. You just have to seek help, um, you know, go to see a doctor, speak to someone about it. Um, but don't, for God's sake, go, don't bottle it up. I'm saying this to a lot of blokes, okay, because I know what blokes are rubbish when it comes to talking. Um, you know, they'll put on a brave face, and I certainly did that for a very long time. You know, I go to work, and I was like, I was unstoppable, you know, at work. Uh, I just, I, I, if somebody said to me, I, I was, you know, are you okay? I was like, yeah, 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 fine. Um, but in reality, I was probably slightly cracking up, you know. I was not not doing well at all from a mental point of view occasionally. Um, and I think my longest period of time without having any sleep at all was four days. Uh, that was when I was a detective inspector um, on a child abuse unit in Birmingham. So, yeah, um, we're going to talk about that a bit. And, and I think you'll find that a lot of cops, uh, you know, have these issues and, and, and it's no bloody surprise dealing with some of the shit that you have to deal with. One of the other uh, things I'm going to talk about. Sorry, I'm just uh, faffing with my. There we go, faffing with my MacBook here, which went to sleep, but it's woken up now, thank God. One of the other reasons I decided to write the book. Um, uh, so uh, I don't think I actually finished that point off. Part of the reason, uh, just sorry about this, I'm being a bit of a, um, a bit of a fuckwit. I think that's the word. Part of the reason why I wrote the book was that. I needed to try and make peace with some of that stuff. I think it was, um, uh, it sounds a bit 
uh, poncy to say it, but I think you would probably describe it as uh, unprocessed trauma. You know, some of the things that you dealt with over the years were pretty grim, um, as well as dealing with all the, you know, crap that goes on in a large organisation. Sometimes you sometimes you have to deal with pretty toxic managers or, or um, you know, some of the unfair criticism, some of the worry, some of the jobs you're involved in were very worrying, you know, particularly child deaths and... Um, yeah, things that, you know, you'd lie in bed at night worrying about. You think, oh, God, this is I'm going to end up in this shit here. Um, not because of anything you've done or anyone else in the police has done, but just because the media want to scalp uh, or, or the, you know, the courts, uh, the legal system, they want to scalp. And, and, the, and the most convenient scalp most of the time, it seems these days, is, is the poor old bill. Uh, they get it in the neck, as do, you know, other people like social workers and you know, doctors and people who are basically trying to do their best in really difficult circumstances, they, they end up um, getting in the shit. Um, and, it's, and it's really, really um, stressful uh, when you're in, in, these, in these situations. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there's that kind of uh, cathartic wanting to try and come to terms with some of the things that I'd um, dealt with, as well as uh, sort of from an autobiographical point of view, I think it's really important to, to get this stuff on the record. You know, you deal with a lot of things over the years that uh, are history in the making, really. Uh, and I look back on lots of things I dealt with over the years. Uh, and without any shadow of a doubt, you know, we were part of the people that I was working with and, you know, the teams I was on. We were part of, of history on, in a lot of things, particularly when I was working in Special Branch. You know, we did some things that were that, were, that can never be talked about. And I'm certainly not going to be talking about them on this podcast. You know, I, I, I did stuff with people who and they know what they did and I know what we did. And, you know, and we made history. You know, I'll, I'll talk about some of it as stuff that's in the public domain. I'm certainly not going to f- put myself in a position where I get arrested for official secrets act, uh, issues. Um, that would be stupid. And I wouldn't do that. Um, but but certainly I want to I wanted to sort of try and record some of those things that that I think uh, are all part of an oral history of the police. You know, in my in my spare time, I, I do for about the last four or five years, I've worked as a voluntary uh, chaplain at uh, a local hospice. And uh, I lo- absolutely love it. The, the uh, people are great. Um, the doctors and nurses are amazing. And you get to, one of the real joys of that is that you get to speak to some really, really interesting people um, who've lived incredibly interesting lives uh, and you know, and they're at the, the sort of end of life, um, and and there's things that they want to get off the chest, or or there's sometimes it's just a case of uh, wanting to tell you about what they did, you know. And some of these people have just done some incredible things, you know. And some of them are like really, really old people. Sometimes they're in their well into their nineties, and uh, you know they've got some great stories to tell you. Um, so this is kind of a little bit like that, and we do these things called living autobiographies in at the hospice, um, where where we kind of get put a, a record of of what they've done and tape record them, and it's a bit like that for me, I suppose, doing this. And the final reason is is more as well as there being sort of unprocessed um, trauma. I think there's definitely for me a lot of anger when I, and I'm not an angry person. I hope you can probably tell already I'm not the sort of person who and maybe that's half the problem uh, maybe I'm you know maybe maybe as a as a profession we should have got more angry about all this stuff I definitely think we 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 kind of took it um, lying down far too much and certainly 
certainly our senior, some of our senior, not all of them, but some of our senior leaders in the country definitely should have kicked up more of a fuss. But there's a lot of anger, I think, about the work for me and a lot of police officers, every single police officer I speak to, kind of past and present, certainly those who've been in the job for a long time, feel exactly the same way, is that we've been completely shafted as an organisation, as a profession, over the last sort of 10, 11 years. And it all sort of, the, the rot sort of, I'll talk about this in the book, yeah, the politicisation of policing sort of started way back in the Blair years. So it's, so there was a lot of politicisation of policing then, but then we got to 2010 uh, with um, David Cameron and Theresa May, who, who uh, and I'm going to say it as it is, because everybody else says it, but I'm just going to say it, they royally, royally screwed the British Police Service. And for whatever reason, I don't know what their motives were, they'll say it was about austerity and cutting costs, but I think it was a lot more than that. There was an agenda going on there where they wanted uh, almost bordering on a hatred of policing, and and I don't understand why they felt that 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 was the right thing to do. You know, the last 10 years have been a terrible time in British policing. Um, We've seen, we've lost... We lost 20,000 police officers nationally to cuts and, and uh, 23,000 members of police staff. Um, so there, straight away, you, you've lost sort of uh, nearly 45,000 people from your workforce. Think about If you actually think about that, 45,000 people, that's a massive amount. And the impact of that was absolutely terrible, not just for our organisation, but for the public. You know, the public have, have now, you know, got a situation where there is almost no community policing presence in towns and villages all across the country. The police just literally rush from one place to the other. They've turned into sort of like a firefighting reactive service rather than doing what I think is more important, which is all about preventing things from happening in the first place. And it should be about building relationships in the community with people, building trusted relationships with people in the community. But you know what? And because of all of those cuts, that's almost non-existent now. Uh, The net result of that is that people are at a lot more risk today than they were 10 years ago. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to have to say that. You look at the epidemic of gun and knife crime uh, that we've seen. We've looked at look at the undermining of things like stop and search by not just Theresa May, but people like Sadiq Khan, who, who on one hand said he'll do everything he possibly could to, to, to reduce stop and search in London. And then once he saw what, what was going on, the bloodbath unfolding in front of him, he then said he'd do everything he could to increase stop and search. So, you know, we're, we're kind of these, um, we, we seem to be like the whipping boy of society, um, certainly of, of, of politicians and, and the media. And the media have been, there have been some really, some really great politicians, what am I saying, great politicians, or any great politicians. There's some um, really great journalists out there, absolutely fantastic journalists, but some bloody awful ones as well. And, and we've had a, a very, very unfair time of it at the hands of journalism in the last, I'd say, um, 15, 20 years. So, so yeah, so I just thought, um, let's get it all down on paper. And hopefully, I think what's, what's the best outcome? The best outcome for this book and this podcast, I think, is for a lot more people who are very quick to judge the police to, sudden, to sort of actually think, actually, you know what? It's really they're doing a really really hard difficult job, and it's a job that I certainly want to do. Wouldn't want to do myself. So you know what? Let's cut them some slack. 
you know, when they get things wrong, let's like let's not hang them out to dry. Let's kind of treat it as a learning thing. So yeah, those are my reasons for for writing the book. Right, listen, I've kind of blabbered on. I'm probably going to wind it up uh, in a moment. Uh, I had a really interesting conversation with Kay, my wife, yesterday evening uh, over a few glasses of wine uh, where we listened back to to this. Um, I'm actually recording this little excerpt uh, the morning after uh, the previous bit. Um, otherwise, I'd be some sort of weird time traveller, wouldn't I? Yeah, we were just talking about uh, the risks for doing something like this. Uh, personally, professionally, you know, what's the impact potentially on on me? You know, some people aren't going to like this. Uh, some people are going to really strongly disagree with it. Um, and, and some people will probably feel quite sympathetic towards it and probably agree with a lot of what I'm saying. Um, I suppose all I can say to that, I mean, at some point it'd be interesting to get Kay on here and, and we'll talk through some of those issues because she has her own perspective, uh, which I respect. And we had quite a, a lively discussion about it. I think she 100% agrees with a lot of the things that I've been saying because she's lived the experience of, of seeing a lot of the things that I've done and the impact that it's had on me and the impact it has on a lot of my friends who are in the police. But we know that it's an extremely, I think the word is febrile atmosphere at the moment. I've just looked at the headlines in the paper this morning and... Uh, not surprisingly, the police are in the headlines yet again uh, on The Observer talking about um, they've clearly obtained some statistics regarding the numbers of police officers who have been investigated for uh, sexual misconduct, I believe it was. Uh, and then there's another heading headline in the, in the Daily Mirror, uh, uh, the Sunday Mirror, talking about ex-female police officers alleging a culture of uh, sexism and bullying. So all I can say is all I can do is speak from my own experience in all of this stuff. And, you know, do I think um, there is absolutely no sexism and bullying in the police? No, of course I don't. That would be stupid. But the reality is that um, there's sexism and bullying in every single organisation. And, um, and I'm not saying that it's... Uh, I don't condone it. I, uh, If I identified it when I was previously serving, I would have dealt with it very firmly. And I'm... And I'm absolutely no, under no illusion whatsoever that uh, th those officers, I don't know the history of those allegations in the Met, but I've, I've no doubt whatsoever that if there was the evidence that they'd behaved improperly, they would have been disciplined or sacked. Um, so uh, the idea that we're not just institutionally racist, but we're now apparently institutionally misogynistic is, um, I think, wrong and uh, just uh, further evidence of some of the things I've been saying, that there's a hostile narrative going on at the moment, which is unhelpful. And I suppose the, the thing that I would say more than anything else about that is, what is that going to actually achieve in terms of the outcome? It will definitely, looking at it from through the narrow prism of policing, it will definitely achieve an outcome in policing of further demoralisation of officers, a sense that they are continually under attack and can't do anything right in the eyes of the media or certain parts of the media. Uh, and it also feeds a belief amongst uh, young women that the police is not an organisation that would be welcoming to them. Um, all I can say, again, from my own experience, is that some of the very best police officers I've worked with in 30 years were women. Uh, 
and uh, everybody brings their own uh, skill set to the organisation. So if there's any young women out there who are thinking of joining the police uh, or are currently training to be police officers, I would just say, uh, please don't be disheartened by these sorts of headlines. Um, you know, you will, you know, experience things as you go through your career that you don't like. But but then, you know, my wife would tell you that in a 26-year career with IBM, she had to deal with a lot of, you know, inappropriate banter and all of this kind of stuff. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in every organisation. Uh, it would be completely naive. You know, people aren't robots. They're human beings. There is a line, clearly, uh, you know, where something stops being banter and amusing and starts becoming offensive uh, and that's that's the line that we've all we've all collectively got to real uh, you know kind of try not to cross but anyway listen I'm going to leave it there I hope you've enjoyed this I hope you find it interesting I hope it's whet your appetite for uh, listening to some more uh, so I'll probably look to leave it uh, another few days before I drop another episode in um, in the next episode I'm probably going to get uh, into the book uh, as I said, I'm not going to be reading verbatim. You can do that yourself, um, but I'll be dipping into it and then giving you my sort of thoughts uh, and, and a bit more sort of background and context. So have a good week. I hope you have a nice day. The sun is shining here and um, we're going to go out for a nice walk with uh, with the dog. Uh, our dog is called Charlie, otherwise known as Charlie Boo Boo's, um, otherwise known as Charlie Boo Boo Bear. Um, that's his name and he's a cross between a um, Shih Tzu and a Maltese Terrier and he's very cute um, he's a bit of a hairdresser's dog um, but um, we're also getting a Springer Spaniel puppy in uh, in a few weeks time which is very exciting so yeah I'll probably put some pictures of Charlie Booby Bear and our new Springer Spaniel puppy on the website and you can and you can ooh and ah when you see that okay alright bye